Hi guys, it's Rach. I hope you're having a fantastic day. And I hope you're ready to talk about love, relationships, what it means to have intimacy, what it means to pursue partnership with another person in a healthy way. As part of our Mastermind series, we pick a single topic and we gather some of the best advice we've heard in six years of doing this podcast from experts in their field. And today you're going to hear a mix of different people bringing their perspective to what a relationship is supposed to be, what it's supposed to look like, how it's supposed to be a space and an experience for you, and also what it's not supposed to be. But you're going to hear all kinds of ideas and wisdom. And as always, if you want to hear the full conversation, go back and listen to that episode. But I hope that this gives you some food for thought on what it means to be in love and what it means to love yourself well. Because you are the only relationship that you're going to have forever. So as much as you pursue growing and taking care of your partner and loving each other more deeply, I hope you also flip that script on yourself and bring that same intentionality to the relationship you have with you. So this is today's Mastermind episode, and we'll be back soon with more conversation. Hi. I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. These friends of mine, they had a kid who was special needs. He was a very bad sleeper. And my friend also had a full-time job and was a grad student at the same time. So she's really stressed out. But they remembered from earlier in their relationship having a really great getaway at a bed and breakfast, I think, in the Poconos. And she had lost all of her groove. She had zero. Her desire was flatlining. They're like, okay, so what we should do is try to recreate the context where we had great sex. So they go back to the same bed and breakfast, but like the drive was really difficult. They were really stressed out when they got there. And though they had tried to recreate the context, they had gone to the same physical place because their mental state was not the same. They couldn't recapture the feeling they had that time they went there before. So even though they had gone to the same physical place, they weren't really capturing the same context because they were so stressed out. So what do you say to, I mean, I I bet you could give us all sorts of answers, but what do you say to listeners who 
really, they miss that. They miss that connection. They really, you know, they have a new baby or they, there's something happening mm -hmm. in life that's really affected the context of their ability to mm -hmm. enjoy. Is it, hey, let's just take a break? Is it there are things you could do? Like, how do we help this? Yeah. So the first part of the answer is only ever do things that you like. <laughs> Pleasure. For, I know Imagine. it sounds really simple wow. and basic, but you'd be because we are taught that we have a kind of duty or an obligation or a responsibility. The doctor tells us, what is it, eight weeks after birth? Girl. We're ready. Girl. <laughs> My very simple definition of, quote, normal sex is... Any sexual contact, whatever that means for you and your partner or partners, uh, where everyone is glad to be there and free to leave with no unwanted consequences yes. and no unwanted pain for anyone. Wow. Oh, I feel and like so important. if you're experiencing pain that is just uncomfortable, then stop right. and seek a medical provider. Right. Pain right. is the one thing beyond consent where... I'm like, that's actually not normal. Yeah. There's a sex therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde who uses this party analogy with uh, her clients. She says, so if your best friend invites you to a party, you say yes because it's your best friend in a party. Uh, but maybe as the date approaches, you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have to organize childcare. There's going to be all this traffic. Am I really going to feel like putting on my party clothes at the end of a long week? Mm. But you said you would, and so you put on your party clothes and you show up to the party. And what usually happens? You, well, if it's my best friend, I'm definitely going to have a great time once I'm there. Yeah. There you go. Right. If you're having fun at the party, you're doing it right. Yeah. So, like, even if you're a bit like, mm, okay, I mean, I guess we said we would. We scheduled our date night, like the sex therapist said. And you sort of, like, you're chucking the last of the toys in the toy boxes and you're carrying the last little laundry up with you into the bedroom and you get there and you're like, okay, fine. But you, you know, you let your skin touch your partner's skin and your body wakes up and goes, oh, right. I really like this. Yeah. I really like this person. You're doing it right. Yeah, definitely. But if you show up and you don't like the sex you are having, there's no amount of being like totally horny for parties that's going to make that party worth going to. I have a, a friend who's a sex therapist and researcher, Peggy Kleinplatz, and what she often says is that low desire is often evidence of good judgment. Ooh, shit. Ooh, that is good. Low desire. Wait, say that again. Low desire is, is often evidence of good judgment. Yeah, yeah. That's so real. The way she asks it of her own sex therapy clients is what kind of sex is worth wanting. Mm. Yeah. God, Which is good. like you were you were moving in that direction where you're like, I better find out what I even like. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And men are just as trapped as women are. Like their scripts are just as bogus. They're like you said, they're not allowed to ask questions. They're not allowed to not already know everything. Um, you know that like county fair game where you take a hammer and you hit the thing and the yes. thing goes up and hits the bell, ding, and that means you're a man. Yes. The strength tester. Yeah. A lot of guys are taught that women's orgasms are like that. Mm. Like if they can make a woman come, right. they're real men. Right. Or ding, yes. and they're men. Which is a great dynamic to make a woman motivated to fake it. Ooh, yes. Because if his sense of personhood, his value as a man is contingent on your body 
doing something and your body's like, I don't not today, man. I'm pretty tired and stressed out and I just don't have it today, but you really need it apparently. So I will just give it to you and we can be done here. Stress and body image. Those are the big, almost universal two things that hit women's breaks in particular. Uh, so when you have body self-criticism and somebody is looking at or touching your body, every thing you imagine they see, everything you imagine they feel activates those self-critical thoughts. And do self-critical thoughts about your body activate the accelerator or do self-critical thoughts activate the brakes? The brakes for sure. Yeah. So if you are activating self-critical thoughts at the same time that you are doing sexy things, the brakes are just going to be on and that's going to prevent you from becoming more aroused, from experiencing more pleasure and usually getting to orgasm. So if you train yourself to not activate the brakes, to not have those self-critical thoughts, they're going to come floating in because we live in a culture that still not only rewards us for conforming with the culturally constructed aspirational ideal, but punishes us when we don't conform to the culturally constructed aspirational ideal. Um, and so we're afraid that if we accept our bodies as they are, somebody out there is going to come and get us and yell at us and be like, how dare you love your body exactly the way it is? How dare you not try to change your shape and size? So it takes practice. I often recommend people do the mirror activity where they stand naked in front of a mirror and write down everything they see that they like. And the first time you do it, it might be like your kneecaps. Yep. It might be like your spirit because you can see it in your eyes or your eyebrows or any one thing. But you keep doing it every day. You look and you look at what you like. And this will gradually build up. You'll be able to see your body clearly without the distorting cultural lenses of what my sister calls the bikini industrial complex. <laughs> right. That really wants you to conform to one specific body type and says that if you don't fit that body type, then you literally should be ashamed of yourself yes. and you are not allowed to access pleasure. So the more you're like, actually, my body's a freaking fracking miracle and what an enormous gift that is the one thing I have on the day that I'm born that I will still have with me on the day that I die. Hooray. <laughs> it's going to make being on top and being seen precisely as you are not hit the brakes, and even actively stimulate the accelerator. Yeah, for sure. So my mission, my whole purpose, my reason for being alive on Earth is to teach people to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. And for me, confidence is knowing what is true about your body and mind, your culture, your brain. So knowing about the dual control model, knowing about arousal non-concordance, knowing what gets you to orgasm, if orgasm is a thing for you. Uh... And joy is the hard part because joy is loving what is true, knowing what's true, loving what's true about your body, loving what's true about your, let's face it, real screwed up culture, loving what's true about your brain and your mind, loving what's true, even if it's not what you wish were true, even if it's not what you were taught is supposed to be true. When you approach a partner with confidence, loving what's true about you and joy, loving what's true about you, that does make it a lot easier for them to approach you with confidence and joy for regardless of whatever ways that you don't completely overlap with their expectations about what a partner is supposed to be. 
It's easier for them to love those things if you already do. But man, is it easier if you hook up with someone, if you meet somebody and you're getting to know them more and more, if it seems clear to you that they don't have to overcome some kind of bias or preconceived idea or any notion that you're like going to be a status symbol for them instead of being like a full person. If you're getting together for a long-term relationship, if you're getting married, like the idea is till death do us part. You are signing up for decades of changes in their body shape and size, in their personality, in their ability, in their illness and pain. The book I'm currently writing, my next book is uh, about sex and long-term relationships, so this is on my mind a lot. Yeah. So you're looking for someone who has already done a lot of the work of overcoming this stuff. You want them to be able to match you in your having overcome all these messages we were taught about who we're supposed to be as sexual people rather than who we truly are. You're also looking for someone whom you can build strong trust with. So trust is being willing to bear a cost for someone. Okay, wait, break that down for me. So trust is knowing that if you bear a cost for someone else's well-being, you will both gain in the long term. So in a healthy relationship, if one person keeps working in order to keep the bills paid while another partner goes back to school, you are bearing a cost for the other person, trusting that in the long run, it's going to strengthen your relationship and your life together. In a not great relationship, you're going to continue paying the bills while your partner goes to grad school and they're just going to leave afterward, right? Like that's a betrayal of trust. So who is worth bearing a cost for? There's a, a researcher and relationship therapist named Sue Johnson who describes trust as the answer to the question, are you there for me? And R is an acronym that stands for emotionally accessible, emotionally responsive, and emotionally engaged. So when I come to you with a difficult feeling, will you turn toward me with kindness and compassion? You're looking for someone who can engage with increasing intimacy and authenticity with your difficult feelings. That's a person who's there for you and is willing to bear a cost and is worth bearing a cost for. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Debit card users, listen up. You've worked hard for your money. Now it's time to make it work even harder for you. With Discover Cashback Debit, everyone can get cash back on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Earn on things like gas, groceries, and even that midday latte. And to top it off, there are no fees, period. Yep, 
That means you won't be charged fees on your checking account. Transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashbackdebit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. This is really, this was really important for me on like so many levels. This idea of like showing them how to love each other because I didn't grow up with that. I grew up in a house. We also had four kids in the house I grew up in. And um, my parents did not regulate or moderate how we treated each other ever. And as the baby of four, I feel like that was really awful. Like I think that things happened to me when I was a kid that are so effed up. And that I would never, like, I I can't even imagine allowing my kids to bully and tease and do things like that to each other. And so for me, not only was this very important, but it was also very healing. And it all sort of had that foundation in, in love. I'm going to say love a million times. And you can roll your eyes, but it is real. <laughs> so... I set this intention and I sort of saw the way that I would do it. I'd be more intentional with play and I'd kind of um, encourage them and I'd show them and we'd, and to be completely honest with you, I remember the first few times being intentional about that. Like, oh, right, this is an opportunity to play and this is what I said I would do. But y'all, I don't even remember like nine months of doing that. And I didn't even realize that a seismic shift had happened. Until recently, I was reviewing a notebook. I literally, I I think you guys have heard me say this a lot. Like I go back and I look at my old notebooks every once in a while. I'm kind of like, okay, well, what, what's happening? And what was I talking about a year ago? And how are things going? And how are things different? And this was one of them. I opened a notebook from a year ago and I saw that intention, which I fully forgot that I wrote down. And it gave me like the hair on my arm stood up. Because the shot that I called is how they are today. They are such good friends. Yes, they still fight with each other. They are such good friends. They are so happy to share a room with each other. He has become like the sweetest big brother. She idolizes him. And I was like, holy crap. Setting this intention. I mean, this was like two other people that I had the ability to influence. Imagine how powerful it is when it's yourself. So setting the intention and committing to loving yourself is the first step. The second step is, I think, always and forever, these are just my ideas. I'm sure there are experts and doctors and therapists and so many people who could also help you with this. This is just your girl, Rach, telling you what worked for me. But the second thing that I have felt is very powerful in me learning to love myself is really truly knowing yourself separate from any labels that they gave you. Get to know yourself separate from any labels that other people have given you. And I think that includes any label that you are to other people. One element of myself is that I am a mother. One element of myself is that I am a friend, a sister, a daughter, a girlfriend, 
Those are elements of me, but that is not who I am at my core separate from anybody else. And those are big parts of my life. But if all I know about myself is who I am in relation to others, then other people's relationships get to be the barometer of how I'm doing and how lovable I am. Does that make sense? Like if you identify yourself first and foremost as a daughter, let's say you have a very strong connection with your parents and you identify yourself as a daughter and you have parents who are manipulative or mean, or maybe they have their own broken journey that's having them affect you in certain ways. The way they feel about you as a daughter will absolutely trickle down into the way that you feel about yourself. So it's important that you know and love who you are completely removed from anybody else. And I realize in retrospect that a lot of the things I struggled with for a very long time was looking in the mirror and having a cognitive dissonance between who I knew I was, who I knew I am, who I knew I was back then, and like what I was seeing in the mirror because I was trying to live into other people's ideals of what I should look like. We experience these moments where the people around us either outright sort of dislike who we are at our core or do passive aggressive things or say passive aggressive things like that, that infer that something's wrong with us. So even if they don't purposely say it, those little digs add up until you learn to behave in a way that is what other people would like instead of what you would love. And it's not surprising to me that the most love I've had for myself is since I became single because it was how I was able to get space and freedom to learn who I was, good and bad, right? And to really work on falling in love with myself. Because then when I came into a relationship or I came into dating someone, I came in as myself. I refuse to show up as someone else. I am flawed. I am imperfect. I am figuring out. I am a, you know, this soul having this human experience and doing my best and all of those things. And I'm bringing that to all of my relationships because I've learned that if I can't show up as myself, I don't have a chance of loving what that is. So a big part of loving yourself is accepting all the pieces of you, all the parts, all the moles, all the pimples, all the dimples, all the ingrown hairs on your bikini line, all the moles that have a hair growing out of them, all the cellulite, all the stretch marks, all all of it, all of it. And if you struggle with self-love, there's a really good chance that you weren't given that as a child, that you nobody taught you to love yourself because maybe you had parents who didn't know how either. And it's like, give yourself what you needed. Give yourself what you needed then. You know, our subconscious doesn't know the difference between what we imagine and what's real. 
your subconscious does not know the difference between the things that you make up in your head and what happened in real life. It's why you can think about something that hasn't happened and give yourself an anxiety attack. Your body can have a physical response to something you're imagining. So knowing that that's the case, you can imagine times in your past where maybe you were outright shamed for being who you were, or you were taught that to love yourself was selfish, or you were taught something that you know was a disservice to you. Go back in your mind's eye as the adult that you are right now today and imagine the adult you are right now today. I do this all the time. I imagine 39-year-old me going and taking care of three-year-old me. I imagine, I just did this exercise with my therapist last week. I imagine 39-year-old me going back and there's three-year-old me in a park and she's scared and she's unsure and what does she need and what did she want? And I imagine that playing out in my head and it's so healing. Love yourself like you would love others. Think of the people that you love most in the world. How do you treat them? How do you show them love? Think of your children. What are ways that you care for them, that you love them, that you show those feelings? How can you give that to yourself? And it's worth saying, you know what? I'm realizing that not everybody listening to this maybe even knows what a healthy kind of love looks like. Maybe someone listening to this is like, Rach, I never had any examples. And I'm living out my adult life either not engaging because I know that I'm going to mess it up or falling in love and just going about it all in the wrong way. I think that's a really honest and brave realization to come to. But just because you did not have something modeled for you doesn't mean that you can't have it in your life today. There's a lot of stuff that I didn't have modeled for me in my childhood. And I give the things I didn't have to my kids all the time. And I give the things I didn't have to myself all the time. So I just want to encourage you, if you're on that journey where you're like, I'm not even sure what this looks like when it's healthy. I really want to encourage you, whatever it is you're trying to figure out, a therapist can be really helpful. Going to the library and looking for books, doing some research, YouTube videos, there's so much incredible information that you can find online for free. In the absence of knowing what to do, we model behavior. And if the only behavior you ever saw was ugly and broken and wrong, that might scare you into believing that love is not possible for you. But the fact that you're still with me 45 minutes in means that something, even it's even if it's something at your most core level, knows that this is something your heart is longing for. And it just starts with that intention. The next thing I wanted to say about this is that loving yourself also looks like holding boundaries. Think of yourself as, I was going to say as a child, but you know what? Honestly, at our core, we're all little children who've been hurt who are trying to figure out better ways to do things. So imagine yourself as a child that needs protection. And if you need protection, it means that you have to be very clear about what you will and won't accept in your life. For instance, 
not letting people in your life or not allowing people in your life who disrespect you, are mean to you, are hateful, who trigger you in old ways, who, like, you know, if I'm saying things, you're like, yep, that's aunt so-and-so, or that's my cousin, or that's my best friend from childhood who's so negative, or that's my partner who's so negative and I can't escape them. Like, those are boundaries. You have to protect yourself. You have to protect your heart. You have to protect your energy. Because like I told you earlier, if you're working on loving yourself, but you continually allow people in who are acting in ways that are not loving, those are mixed signals. And I guarantee you that those people have a stronger voice than your inner voice that's just starting to emerge. You haven't practiced this enough to be tempted in that way. It's like if you're on a if you're trying to learn to, you know, eat really healthy and you know that I don't know, nachos will sort of remind you of a certain time and you'll go jump right off the wagon and you'll, you know, abuse your body, you'll have too much tequila. Like it sounds a little crazy, but I think almost everyone can identify with like certain things that will trigger a wild reaction in us that's disconnected from just eating some chips. You could handle those chips. It's a ridiculous example, but you can handle that if you've been taking care of your nutrition for six months and you're in a routine and you're set and you're not triggered. Who cares? Go to the birthday party. Go to Taco Tuesday with your friends. You're not triggered because you are aligned. You know yourself. You've been practicing. But if you're just starting out, you can't be exposed to that. So in the process of learning to love yourself in the beginning, you may need to distance yourself or freaking cut yourself off from people altogether because the way that they treat you is not loving. I mean, honestly, I hope that you don't allow people into your life in any event who are not treating you well. But for this, certainly, if you are on this road and you are trying to learn to love yourself and it keeps getting thrown off, Ask who's in your circle. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Who are your, are your, do your friends love themselves? Are your friends practicing this? Or are you surrounded by people who hate themselves? Are you surrounded by people who are mean to each other and mean to you and mean to them? And this is the example that you're seeing. Hold your boundaries. Hold your boundaries. Almost every morning of my life, I have oatmeal. Seriously, during the winter, having something hot in the morning really makes a big difference in my day. Quaker has been a trusted name in oatmeal for over 145 years, which means they've been milling oats since before the invention of the zipper, the stop sign, or ballpoint pens. Quaker has something for everyone whether it's old-fashioned or quick oats that are good for cooking or baking. And while a ton of things have changed, the good stuff remains the same. Quaker, getting up to some good since 1877. Look for Quaker Oats at your local grocery store. Guys, no two listeners of the show are exactly alike, which means that no two vacations you take are going to be exactly alike either. And if you're looking for a place that will serve all of you, 
Texas has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities that allow for an infinite number of different travel experiences. I love Texas so much, I moved my family there for five years. Because here's the deal, Texas has it all. Are you a beach person? We got you. If you love a rugged vacation, not my jam, but there's plenty of campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. My favorite part about Texas? The food. It is the thing I miss the absolute most. Whether you love barbecue or Tex-Mex or just want to be in cities that take their food very seriously. You can enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. To me, being healthy is really grounded in nutrition. Honestly, what I eat and what my kids eat is super important to how we live our lives. It's why I love a company like Thrive Market because Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and sourcing methods. They restrict hundreds of ingredients across their food and cleaning categories. So when I go online and I use their on-site filters, I can figure out exactly my lifestyle needs and trust that what I'm getting from Thrive Market is what I want to take into my body. When you join Thrive Market, you're also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. You can join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Rach for 30% off your first order plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash Rach. Thrivemarket.com slash Rach. I had been in this on and off relationship for five years and I was in the middle of an argument with um, the woman whose name was Carol. And I suddenly had this, I don't know where it came from, but I had a realization that this wasn't our 500th argument. It was our 500th version of the same argument. And suddenly it dawned on me, wait a minute, they all have the same pattern. What's the pattern? And I realized the pattern was that one of us would not be telling the truth to the other one about something important. And it could be a feeling inside, or it could be something we've done, but uh, I would not tell the truth to the person. I would hide the truth, and then I would begin to devalue them. They would look less trustworthy, and and I didn't realize it was because I was hiding the truth from Mm -hmm. them that I had to devalue them. And I also had this bad habit of every time I would get into a relationship hassle, I would always kind of go for the victim position. You know, why are you doing this to me? Why are you always doing this to me? And and the other person would always be busily doing the same thing, you know? <laughs> and uh, so we would get into these things about whose fault it was, and that would go on for ages sometimes. And the third thing I realized in this download I got 
was that a lot of my relationship problems came from something internal in me that I wasn't expressing my own full creativity and my own genius. And because I wasn't expressing myself creatively, I blamed the other person for oppressing my creativity. Holding you back. Holding me back. And this was the thing that happened. And and so I was in the middle of that and this and I realized, oh, there's a simple solution to those three things. One <laughs> is always tell the truth about everything in your relationships. Bong, you know. <laughs> Number two, instead of going for the victim position, take responsibility for it. Figure out why I'm dreaming up this kind of conflict. You know, why would I create this conflict right now? And instead of blaming it on the other person. And the third thing was, I got to make a bigger commitment to my creativity so I don't blame other people for limiting my creativity. I only want relationships <laughs> where both people are scrupulous about telling the truth all the time and where both people take responsibility for things rather than blaming each other and where both people are committed to their relationships so that, I mean, committed to creativity so they don't take out their lack of creative fulfillment on the other person. I think it is in, in some ways being able to face into the world the way it actually is and to be able to resonate with, to go, oh, yes, I see that this person is a player, is really engaged full out. And that's one thing I saw in Gay, like he's going full out into uh, life and not waiting for somebody else to do it first. So that spirit of adventurousness, but also the willingness to be open to discovery, open to learning, not as a principle, but as an ongoing way of living. And to me, that's just the sexiest thing there is. <laughs> you know, just the the what wants to happen now, what's evolving, what's going on here, what could happen instead, what's the opposite of this. So just the whole frame of we start out with basically everybody's got the same material and what do we make of it, I think really depends on curiosity willingness to let go of your point of view, but also just the full engagement. Most people are not engaged. Yeah, You know, they're back behind, they have a persona out front that, you know, makes them fit in, but they're not really interested in what can happen here on this amazing adventure of life. And um, I knew with Gay that I would have, I would never be bored. <laughs> <laughs> I think also being willing to step out into the unknown over and over, you know, and not wait for somebody else to give you a guarantee, that willingness to go, okay, I'm just going to go for it and we'll see what happens. What we honed, because it, it took really years to figure out how that works operationally, yeah. you know, to tell the truth all the time. So one of the things that we hit really quickly was that both of us had grown up with constant criticism. That was kind of the water we swam in. And so I would hear something that Gay would say as criticism, rather than him saying what he was experiencing or what he noticed about me. So that actually took several years to move, well, actually to end blame and criticism. Because a lot of people think, I'm going to tell you the truth. The truth is that you're a jerk. <laughs> That's the truth, you know? And, yeah. and what we that's found, not the truth. And yeah. that's not the truth. And to, so to uh, hone that telling the truth is actually 
sharing my experience as I'm experiencing it as accurately as I can. It's more like describing than it is declaring. Oh, that's good. And so the more we got into, here's what's happening for me, here's what I'm noticing, and risking that the other, I have no idea how he was going to respond, whether he was going to be hurt or angry or excited. But going into that over and over again gave us the opportunity to find out that that telling the truth is actually the only safety there is. You know, and if we weren't feeling safe, I what I came to was, oh, I, there's a deeper layer. There's a deeper layer. And that was part of the discovery that was so exciting in the first years of when I landed on something that was actually unarguable, the argument stopped. Okay, explain that. When you landed on something unarguable. Like if I was saying, you know, I don't, I feel uncomfortable about, you know, what just happened. And he would, that would create argument. But if I, if I went down to, oh, when you said that, I just, I felt my, my face got hot and I started having some racy thoughts and I realized I got afraid that you were going to leave me. So that following down to what was most deeply true always had to do with me, never had to do with him. And he can't argue back because this is your experience. Right. Yeah. He yeah. can't say your face didn't get hot. <laughs> right. right? Yeah. yeah. Although in my practice, I had one couple who came in and she said, oh, no, actually he said, oh, I've been feeling really sad lately about what's been going on in our relationship. And he said, no, you haven't. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> that, yeah. That doesn't happen very often, though. <laughs> no, but, when, yeah. when somebody does say something that's absolutely straight on, you know, like I'm scared or I'm angry or I'm sad, the other person never argues with that. Mm -hmm. They they have the opportunity to drop down into a level of authenticity yeah. themselves. Not Not everybody takes that opportunity, but that does happen. And when it happens, it's real magic because oh. often here's a kind of a strange thing that I learned after doing marriage in relationship work for a few years, almost everybody, they come in arguing, but then when they get down to the deepest level, they find out that they were both afraid of the same thing. Ooh. You know, like both people are afraid of abandonment, but they yell at each other out of the anger level uh, based on that old fear, but they don't realize that both of them have the same fear. Wow. And that's actually one of the gifts of getting into a close relationship is that you can heal the wound that both of you have. Wow. Do you find that often couples have the same wound? Yeah, very yeah. often. Oh, wow. And they've learned to deal with it in different ways depending on their family situation. So like I learned to be super responsible <laughs> because <laughs> that worked in my family. Yes. One question. thing you have to understand about all human beings, whether they're men or women or whoever, it's it's that we both have an urge mm -hmm. to merge with other people and we both have an urge to be individuated. So that goes on. You can even see it in the first year of life. In the first six months of life, it's all about nurturing and bonding and getting a sense of trust. The second six months, you're learning to crawl, you're exploring, you're going out into the world. And the same process goes on throughout life that we're always in the process of mm -hmm getting close to other people, or the magic, finally, when you find out that you can be close to mm. another person and your full individual self. That's that's the kind of the payoff mm. at the end of things, because up until end of, you know, patterns, like a common pattern we work with also is 
a very logical person <laughs> often gets married to a very ero emotional person <laughs> yeah. and then spends the next 40 years trying to make them less emotional yes. and more logical. Oh my gosh. And vice yes. versa. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so what you have to do is at some point wake up to those patterns, just like I woke up to that pattern before I met Katie. At some point you have to kind of shine a flashlight on that and say, oh, I see, I keep doing the same thing over and over again. And at that point, you have the chance of waking up out of the pattern and actually making a choice to say, okay, I want to be a fully evolved human being. I want to be able to be fully close to another person, and I want to be completely my own person too. Mm -hmm. And it's possible to have mm -hmm. both of those things. It just takes a lot of work and dedication to both of them. That work, though, is really one choice at a time. Oh, that's and, good. Yeah. And that choice, because we, we think, oh, it's so, right. how can I possibly get there? And the the choice to interrupt a pattern and to do something different. So if you're a glommer, like really likes to get close, to spend time alone without any input from anybody else, just, you know, a little 10 minutes at a time, just seeing what occurs for me when I'm just by myself. What do I want? What do I enjoy? What do I want to choose? Because like when Gay and I got together, I was like a surgical nurse. I could tell what he wanted before he knew what he wanted. But before we, we, he would say, what do you want? And I go, ah, uh, and I didn't actually know how to know what I wanted. It was that fundamental. And so really, just making choices like, what do I want to eat? Where do I want to go? What do I want to read? Rather than when, oh, sure, honey. Mm -hmm. uh, rather than doing the, oh, sure. Just those one choice at a time really begins to shift and to give you a sense of confidence of, oh, oh, that one worked out. Or, oh, I see that didn't quite work. So I make a little adjustment or I inquire more deeply. So the it can be, also it can be fun not hard work. Because I think one of the big mythologies about relationship is, oh, it's hard. Have your Marriage fun. Marriage is hard work. Us compromise. Mm -hmm. and, right. you know, and we've found that that's just bunk. I think that's just an excuse for not taking responsibility for having what you want and asking for what you want and navigating that. All relationship squabbles contain a race to occupy the victim position. That's it. One yeah. person stakes out the victim position and say, Katie, you're making me miserable. If you would only stop doing X, Y, and Z, I'd be a lot happier. And the other person, of course, isn't say. Oh, they don't say. You know, you're right. I am ruining your life. They, they don't, <laughs> Let they don't. me stop ruining your life. Yeah. <laughs> what the other person does is they say right back. Well, if you hadn't done uh, QRS before I did X, Y, Z, we wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah. So and both, all my friends think so too. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's the next level is when right. you start gathering evidence. Yes. You know, you say, none of your friends would like to tell you what a bitch you are, but <laughs> I need to inform they, you. Right. Uh, but back to the, er, underneath every argument is that race to occupy the victim position, which involves disowning responsibility. And what people need to realize is that two individuals are actually make 200% yeah. responsibility. This idea blew my mind. Yeah. One person is 100% and the other person is 100%. But there's a delusion that people, you know, one person is 50 and the other person is 50 and they make 100. And that's erroneous because 
you're an individual. Mm-hmm. You know, the the partner is a full evolved individual. And if the person steps out of that realization and says, you're making me miserable, they're going below the line of taking full responsibility. The only way out of situations like that is for both people to own it and say, hmm, okay, why am I creating this argument right now? Rather than it's your fault. You know, hmm, what am I feeling? What am I, what's missing in me that's causing me to have this kind of argument with you? And what is there to learn from this? Because people mistake responsibility for blame or burden. But what we've discovered is that when you take responsibility, you're actually reclaiming your creativity because we're always creating, but it's mostly unconscious. And the pattern of I'm the victim here, and that's what I'm committed my creativity to is proving I'm the victim. But if I actually take responsibility, which is, I'm responsible for this. What am I doing? Hmm, that whole hmm, getting curious about looking at the result and saying, hmm, how am I contributing to this? What just arose? Oh, that reminded me of my interactions with my brother. And I just just popped right out of my mouth. Oh, okay. And underneath that, what I really want is. So you start realizing that responsibility is intimately tied to creativity. Well, it sounds to me like we need y'all to explain your definition of creativity because this sounds so much deeper and richer than what I, you know, I'm going to go paint. I'm going to go write. I'm going to take a photograph. Creativity sounds like everything. It it It, is. Yeah. 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 And it goes into how you live every moment of your Mm -hmm. life. Like Katie is a wonderful chef and I love to watch her make food because it's like watching Picasso paint or watching um, Leonard Bernstein create a symphony or something. It's, you know, she touches everything and it's like everything gets its little bit of love as she's Mm -hmm. making lunch. And so she's expressing her genius through that way, but she can also sit down and write a poem or do other things too. So creativity, you need to think of it almost like life energy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's that juice that makes us feel alive. Yes, well, projection is the action of attributing to somebody else something that's true for you. There's classic examples of it all over the place, but how it works in relationship is it's part of a three-step unconscious process that goes withhold, withdraw, and project. And how it works is a person will withhold something, like I'm feeling hurt, and don't share it, or I'm feeling angry, I'm scared, and I I haven't shared it, so I withhold something. And the act of withholding takes you out of that 100% relationship because now you've decided the other person is not worthy to know the real you. Yes, You devalue them. Mm -hmm. You begin to project onto them that they don't care about you. And it's simply based because you haven't shared that and they don't have anything to care about because you're hiding the real you. I think that culture is every organization's most valuable asset. That will be yours. It won't be her. It won't be your husband. It won't be your books or your website. It'll be your culture inside this company. And that's a bit of a buzzword right now, but it is absolutely true. 30 years in this organization, if I have any expertise, it's around how do you build a great culture. This adage that people are an organization's most valuable asset, you've heard that? 
totally not true. It's bunk. You are not this company's most valuable asset. How you and you get along together, that is what makes this company rock. If you two can forgive each other, because she talks too much and you come to work too late, you get the point, right? If you can forgive each other, if you can pre-forgive each other, if you can trust each other, if you can understand what are her strengths and what are her weaknesses, and you can build complement, that is this organization's most valuable asset. That is your killer app. How the people work at this company, that's what will make you scale. So, so what is the role of leadership? Leaders create culture. Leaders are the linchpin in any organization with culture because you create culture in every interaction, every email, every text, every time you put somebody in BCC, don't use BCC. There's no reason for that because then you create a suspicious culture. But leaders create culture in every interaction. Every time you walk from one building to the next or one cubicle and you're on your phone versus saying hi to someone, how's it going, you're creating or destroying culture. So you have to be very deliberate around the kind of culture you want. All your actions, behaviors, everything you say, every interaction, you're building culture. People don't quit their jobs. They quit their boss. That's so good. That's in the book. That's, That's not original so to me. Good. But more importantly, they also quit their culture. Because you can change bosses out, right? You can move someone around, but if your culture is one where everybody's gossiping and backbiting, you don't trust each other, that's your culture. Mm -hmm. If your culture is you pre-forgive, you don't confess others' sins, you sit in the cubicle and say, can I tell you, I'm feeling there's some awkwardness between us, something's going on, perhaps something I said, I'm totally willing to, to cop to it, but I'm not quite sure what's going on, it's kind of thick in here. Can we just have, that? that's culture. Mm. You gotta work on it, because your culture can devolve to the lowest level or it can go to the highest level. So to your point, Leadership can be learned, but I don't, again, think everybody should be a leader of people. Here's what being a leader of people is like. Let's say you report to me. Yeah. Like that's gonna happen. <laughs> I'm gonna say, Rachel, I called you into my office today because I wanna have a high courage conversation with you. What's said in here stays in here, and I want you to know my intent is to help you fulfill a great career here at the Hollis Company. And there are some behaviors that I'm seeing you exist with the team members that are really causing you some problems. And if they don't correct, it's going to end up in you leaving the organization. I find that when we're, you get the point, right? Like four times a day. It might even be so far as, John, I've called you in my office today because like me, I've noticed that you might be breaking through your deodorant. It's hot in Texas in the summertime, and our body, I know, you're mortified. You get the point, right? And like me, sometimes I gotta switch up my deodorant because I break through it. I've noticed it a bit about you before anybody else does. I really have your best interest in mind. That's leadership. And any other conversation about your productivity, your abundance, your tardiness, your ability to collaborate, your ability to take credit, your ability to walk in and not say, my bad. Do not say that in front of me. Don't let it come out of your mouth. Walk in and say, we went to the concert last night. I had four beers. Okay, I had six beers. I took an Uber home. I overslept and I was late on my report and I own it and I am sorry and it will never happen again. 100% my responsibility. Can I have a second chance? That's the kind of conversations that leaders are having. So all those can be learned. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day though, that's easy for perhaps someone like me who's been doing it for 25 years. I do that all day long, it doesn't even phase me. But for some people, that's like a horrifying conversation to have any of those. And it might keep you up at night for four or five hours while your stomach is churning. If that's the case, leadership may not be the right role for you because the biggest gift you can give someone on your team is to help them see their blind spots. We all have them. 
I'm going too long, stop me. No, this is we, like my dream. We aren't as punctual, we're not as smart, we're not as creative, we're not as self-aware, our breath doesn't smell as good, my wife says I'm not as funny as I think I am. But everybody's got blind spots, and the biggest gift you can give someone as a leader is to have the courage to sit them down and talk about them in private, not discuss them, perhaps role play them with Rachel or her husband, you get the point, right? That's the biggest gift you can give someone, mm -hmm. because what happens is most people have pansy leaders. Well intended, but don't summon the courage to sit down and say, we need to have a conversation. I've seen this behavior four or five times in meetings. I don't know why, but you're really struggling with ever letting somebody else take the credit. Mm. Or you're just, everything's on your own hard drive. You've got to put the files in the server so everybody can access them because you're not the only talented person in this organization. You've got to trust other people. It's those kind of conversations that you gotta have. The problem is most leaders don't do that. Yeah. They sit down and they say, how am I doing? Oh, everything is great, I'm loving it, it's great, it's great. <laughs> and then it's time for Rachel to call you in and say, I got a problem with Tim, what's going on over there? And then you wait three or four more months, it builds up, and then you do one of two things. You either lower the boom on Tim, and he never knew and you devastate him, or you beat him on the bush, and you obfuscate, and, and then Tim walks out thinking that everything's okay. So great leaders have a balance of high courage, but also high consideration, right? They have this diplomacy. I don't have that. I'll talk about anything with anybody. The biggest gift you can give your people is to sit down in a respectful way, have a straightforward conversation, and then lockbox. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about it at lunch with the other managers. Respect that person's yeah. you know, uh, brand. If you wanna build trust with those who are present, you are loyal to those who are absent. So my, my best leadership advice to you is if you wanna build trustworthy relationships. In fact, raise your hand if you're trustworthy. No, put them down. <laughs> who decides if you're trustworthy? Other people. The other person. Yeah, right. that's good. You, you build trust with others through your behavior. You earn the right to be called trustworthy because other people trust you based on your encounters. And if you want to build trust with someone and you're in a conversation and it's getting catty or gossipy and someone tries to draw you in, you say, you know, I'm sure it isn't your intention, but I'll bet you that would hurt Rachel's feelings if she heard that. So my advice to you is go tell Rachel that directly. And if I had that same experience, I'll do the same. Because you can raise the bar without shaming somebody or, or, or rushing to the first row in church. Are any of you those people? Right? You kind of claim the first row, so you're the holier person than that. Yeah, a little bit me. There's a lot of first row ch church rushers, are there yeah, not? Yeah. And culturally as well too. Don't do that. I think as leaders, as general people, we're, we spent most of our career being taught how to communicate. You, right? I mean, you know how to clarify your message, your vision, your values. These are the goals, speak from stage, master PowerPoint, keynote, microphone, your hand gestures, all that kind of stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Since birth, we're kind of taught how to master communication skills. Very few of us have ever have had a formal class on how to listen. Speaking is quite selfish. Listening is quite selfless. And it's pretty counterintuitive because we've been so indoctrinated to just constantly be talking and clarifying and clarifying. Rachel knows her values, she knows her mission, she knows her business goals. Half of you know them. And she has to keep talking about them over and over again because everybody's busy. And so she's also enculturated to be speaking and communicating and persuading and influencing. In fact, you're probably in the persuasion and influence mode at home and at work 95% of the time. That seems right, but great leaders are great listeners because you cannot show empathy 
which is a leadership competency, if you're talking. And here's some great practice tips. The reason we're always talking is because we're usually on our own agenda, on our own timeline. Does that make sense? Your own field of experience. I'm listening to you talk, and I'm thinking, I wish you just would hurry up because um, if I was a girl, I dated him, I know how to solve that, or I had that same business, or you get the, I've already been there in life. If you would just stop talking, I can solve your problem. I'm on my timeline, I'm on my agenda, not yours. You with me? And it's often why we interrupt so, so much. I'll talk about that in a second. So here's what usually happens. I want you to tell me, we're gonna role play, that your dog died. Don't add any more narrative, just tell me your dog died. My dog died. Oh my gosh, was there blood everywhere? Was it hit by a car? Was it horrible? Was it really upsetting? Did you actually hold it in your hands? What happened? <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. Well, thank the Lord, because that underwater dog therapy you and your husband were paying for every month, it was breaking you, it was about time. What a relief. This sounds macabre, but it's not that far-fetched. Say it again. My dog died. Whatever you do, do not take it to that vet down on Central and Fourth because they don't finish the job in the crematorium and they get bones and fur back and all that. I've seen it. It's really a bad thing. <laughs> Say it again. My dog died. I'm sorry. Was it on my agenda? I don't know if she's happy or sad. The dog could have had rabies. The dog could have bitten her son. The dog be, could be incontinent and, and you know, destroying her sheep carpet. Who knows? I have no idea. All my responses were on my own narrative, were they not? What I think she should do, how I think she should behave. I have no idea. So then, and the problem is as leaders, as people, we've all become really good at asking questions, right? Peel the onion, get to the root cause. And that's great in some meetings when you're managing a P&L or you've got a deadline. Asking great questions can be a really good leadership tool. It also can be a horrifyingly selfish interpersonal tool because you're usually on your own narrative. In fact, when someone passes away, what's the first question most of us ask or want to find out? How did they die? That's exactly right. It doesn't matter. It, it matters to you. It doesn't matter to them unless they tell you. People will tell you what they need you to know. You will ask what you want to know. And I think that is a profound, not just leadership skill, but interpersonal skill. Move off of your own agenda. Move off of your own timeline and be selfish and really get into what the other person is feeling and thinking. Do you want your husband to solve most of your problems when you're at home complaining? No. No. You want love. You don't want judgment. You want some empathy. You want him to solve it for you. You just want to talk about it and probably just love you and listen. Mm -hmm. Everyone is the same. The greatest human need is to be understood. So if you want to stop your subconscious impulsive need to constantly interrupt, it comes from a good place. Here's the tip. You ready? Don't. <laughs> And here's how you do it. You gently take your upper lip and you close it and touch your lower lip and you count to seven. Not like, and Deborah Tannen says it's within that seven to 10 seconds that the likelihood is the other person will either finally land their point, finish it off, or disclose something especially meaningful or important is like astronomically likely. If you can just resist the urge to interrupt them, they'll tell you what you need to know. I think it's a great tip. Practice it today. 
don't, 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 you know, you'll, you know, you'll laugh. At the next meeting, you'll be seeing each other kind of like closing your lips, but you'll, you'll have an immediate exponential impact on your ability to become more empathic. And I'm going to finish this off right now. While you're closing your lips and you can't talk, you can't form a word if your, if your lips are closed, you'll be automatically gravitationally pulled back into their point. Your mind won't be wandering on your project or your email or my cufflinks or any of that kind of stuff. You'll be back onto them. It takes some effort, doesn't it? It takes some effort to eliminate all the distractions and kind of get into what they're feeling, what they're saying. Because people aren't crazy. People just have mindsets that are deeply enculturated since birth. And your parents, your ministers, your principal, your teacher. And so people believe things for a reason. Like I wrote a whole chapter about that, right? Yeah. That your paradigms shape your belief system more than you can ever imagine. This idea of carry your own weather comes from never giving over your power to somebody else. Sounds very Oprah-ish. But it's by metaphorically carrying your own weather that you don't allow other people's moods, insecurities, incompetencies to impact your own state of mind. You literally, metaphorically carry your own weather with you. I think vulnerability is not just a leadership competency. I think it's a human competency. I think for so long, all of us, me included, right? We have our exterior lives and our brands and the cars we drive and our image and our paychecks and we build these um, profiles of ourselves. We all have been deeply enculturated in life to believe things that your parents taught you. My parents taught me that Catholic priests, doctors and police officers always tell the truth and are always right. It's insane. <laughs> I mean, but I was, I was raised to believe that. In a middle-class family in the 70s in Florida, of course police officers didn't plant evidence. Of course Catholic priests always had good intentions. Can you imagine if I had to put those three things to the test? <laughs> no. Can you imagine if I was ever called into the sacristy with a Catholic priest and believed fundamentally that everything they did was right and true? My life could have been destroyed. Mm. I have never once fired someone for lack of ability to do the job. I've never fired someone because they weren't really a CPA or they didn't have user interface. It's always because of their inability to get along with other people or to manage themselves. Every termination was because of lack of self-awareness, low self-acknowledgement, um, blind spots, and then their inability to correct it. And like the most brutal, high courage conversation, they could not walk out and change it. So I'm looking for self-awareness. I'm looking for, I want you to admit that you hog all the credit, that you're really struggling with, you know, how to work people whose personalities are different than you. I want you to tell me what kind of people bug you. I ask that question. Tell me the types of personalities that really get on your nerves. When you found yourself at conflict with someone else, what's that like? And their ability to talk about it says so much about them. Now, most people are manipulating you. Because they realize they got to share a story and they got to save it by saying, but I learned so much from it and I'm on a growth trajectory, right? But I think really do less talking. Don't sell your company to them. Just, are they taking, are they taking um, writing stuff down? My favorite question is, so what questions do you have? Oh my gosh, how many six-figure people say, nope, that about sums it up. And I'm like, are you serious? Yeah. You don't have questions about the merger or the acquisition or the fact that our stock dropped 40% or our inventory or that our Italian office is being sued? I mean, really? Yeah. You have no questions, right? <laughs> so I, I, I try to talk a lot less because people will incriminate themselves. Mm -hmm. And the more they say 
and I love to have team interviews. Not 10 on one, but like four on one. And I make it as casual as possible. My, most of my team members used to think I was a horrible interviewer because I was so casual. Like, I'm your friend, everything is great. No, 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 I'm lowering the barrier to entry. Let's have a beer, right? I lower it because I want to see the real you yeah. come out of the facade because everybody is faking it. And anybody can fake it for 90 minutes. Here's the next question I ask. In three weeks, what is it you're going to do that really pisses someone off here? Ooh, that's a good Because question. you're going to, and it's okay. I just want to know what is it going to be. So I can help you get ahead of the, ahead of, ahead of the curve. What's it going to be? You're going to get into some interpersonal conflict. What's it going to be over? So good. And if someone can answer, like, ask me that question. Uh, in three weeks, what are you going to do that's going to piss somebody off here? What am I not going to do? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm really aware of it. I tend to like to talk a lot, and I sometimes think that my, think my ideas are always the best, and I've really grown around this by being very deliberate around talking less, and oftentimes waiting to be called on or being the last person to speak in the room, because a lot of other people's ideas can be just as great as mine and get results in a different way, and my job as a leader is not to turn them into my clones, but to get, you get the point, right? Yeah. So I, I think you have to have a high courage conversation to say, Jim, we have talked about this issue several times now, and I don't know why, perhaps you just disagree, and maybe I'm wrong, but the fact of the matter is, I'm responsible for this culture, and it hasn't changed, and it can't continue anymore, so this conversation now is about getting you situated as best as possible outside of the Hollis Company, mm -hmm. because Friday is gonna be your last day. Mm -hmm. So now, all of our conversations from this moment forward are going to be about how to get you safely situated outside the firm. Because your employment here is over. It's not discussable anymore. I don't want you to think that I don't care about you because I do, that I care about you so much that I want you to succeed outside the firm, but it's not working here anymore. I think that we live in a society that creates this myth that we're all supposed to be perfect and that we're not supposed to make mistakes. And that is exacerbated times one million if you're a woman. And I think that it is made so much worse by social media that shows us a idealized version of what it is to be a person and only shows us the highlights and never shows the mistakes. And also that we are in a culture that I think really there's sort of this subset that loves it when someone makes a mistake, like loves to gossip about it and loves to talk about it and loves to revel in other people getting it wrong. And that creates this sort of terror for a lot of people of trying anything, doing anything, being anything. And it's so much worse if you've done something where you've hurt someone that you really love. You've hurt someone that you care about. You've created this harm. And man, the vulnerability in her being willing to ask that question, I just want to honor it. Because I think that one of our greatest powers is to just be truthful. We still have that trauma from our childhood, from our past, from when we were 14 years old, where someone made us feel bad for what we'd done or who we are, and it's still in there.
So I think that these thoughts really will apply even if you don't feel like you've hurt someone, if you left someone, if you cheated, if you did something that broke a trust or a sacred bond that you had. And some people stay attached to their hurt or are unwilling to forgive themselves because they think, if I keep obsessing about this, then I won't ever do it again. If I keep obsessing about this, then I won't ever do it again. And just speaking from like a really honest place, I definitely realized, I think when I've made public mistakes, like when I've said stuff on social media that was hurtful, intentional or not, I obsessed, and I've talked about this a lot, but I have, I obsessed and obsessed and obsessed and spiraled and um, hated myself and felt insane shame, like so much shame for getting it wrong, for not being perfect, for um, not knowing better, for not doing better, all of those things. And what I realized after a certain amount of time, like six months of feeling really low and feeling really ashamed, which just as a side note, everyone, one of the greatest things that I've ever learned in my own journey of humanity is that your shame isn't going to help anybody. Whatever you did, your shame won't help. You learning will help. You growing will help. Your evolution will help. That's what helps. Your shame doesn't serve, doesn't help. So for me, I realize the reason I keep obsessing over this and the reason I keep the self-flagellation and the self-recrimination and I just keep hating myself is because I think if I can just stay focused on this, then I won't hurt anyone again. Then I won't make a mistake. Then I won't unintentionally do harm. That is kind of crazy when I say it out loud, but at the time it felt very true for me. Only I couldn't really, I couldn't process that that was what was happening. And honestly, I think the only reason that I figured this out is my sweet boyfriend who held space for conversation and talked and talked and talked to me about this for, I mean, probably a year. Um, one day he looked at me and he said, you know, you didn't mean to do this, right? And I was like, yeah, I, I know, but but still, and I just sort of started going. And he's like, and Rachel, if you care this much and you've worked this hard, you understand that you're not ever going to do that again. He's like, you, you can't guarantee that you won't make a mistake again because you're human, but you know you won't make that mistake again. And I was like, whoa, because I I didn't realize that that was – why I was holding on to the attachment. That if I could stay attached to this thing, then at least I wouldn't make the mistake again. Acceptance really is multi-layered. You know, accepting on the surface, accepting how it affected others, accepting why you did it, accepting just sort of all of those pieces. And when it's something that feels really 
life-changing, really bad, really earth-rocking, which I assume that it is because you called in and you asked this question. When it's something like that, I don't think it's possible to process all of it at once. I think it's many, many months of unpacking, maybe years of understanding why. But forgiveness has to start with acceptance of what happened and acceptance of like, why did I do this thing? Like, I really believe and I try so desperately to keep this affirmation in the forefront of my mind that every single human being is doing the best that they can with what they've got on that particular day. So can you accept that on that day, in that moment, you were doing the best that you could? By the way, the best that we can sometimes sucks. The best that we can sometimes mean. The best that we can can absolutely be downright evil for some people. Some people's best is evil because that's all they've got. Those are the only tools in their toolbox. That's the only thing that they're able to do based on whatever their history is. You cannot compare your history, your story, your decisions, your mistakes with other people's. If every single human being had to have a spotlight on them at all times and we got to see all the horrible stuff that everybody has done, nobody would be saying anything to anyone. People in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. And we all live in a glass house. You maybe made a mistake in a different way than your sister would have done or your in-laws would have done or the members of your church community would have done, or your boss would have done, but never ever believe that because they didn't make a mistake the same way you did, that they're, they don't have their own issues in their own life. We're all doing our best, and someday our best sucks. The last reason that I wonder if you might still be stuck in this is because someone else won't let you forgive yourself. There is a part of that book where I tell the story of a couple that I met and she had cheated on him. And they were telling me the story and they were talking about their pain. They were talking about what they had gone through. And I'm counseling them and I'm trying to walk them through it. And I'm, I mean, the pain is so visceral. You can feel his pain and you can feel her shame. And I just, uh, my heart was weeping for both of them. And the whole time they're telling me this, I'm thinking, I mean, this happened six months ago. Like this is, you could feel how new it was. You could feel how raw. And at some point in them telling the story, it comes out that this was like, it was like four or five years before. It was so long ago. I mean, they had like been married for seven years or something, and this had happened five years ago. And I remember in that moment being like, oh, damn. She can't forgive herself because he will not let her forget this. Let me say it again. She cannot forgive herself because he refuses to let her forget this. 
Every single time they get in a fight, he brings it up. Every single time he's frustrated with her, he finds a way to weave it in. Well, it's hard for me to trust you because of what you did. He is still regurgitating this pain as if it just happened to him yesterday. And by the way, in the same way that you are attached to not being able to forgive yourself, that husband was very attached to his pain for whatever reasons, right? Maybe it makes him feel safe. Maybe he's afraid of getting hurt again, so he wants to keep her in check. Maybe he secretly hates her for what she did and he wants to bring it up again and again. But all I know is that inside of this relationship, that man punishes her for this mistake over and over and over again, and she allows it to happen because she believes that that is what she deserves for the mistake that she has made. I'm not saying that you shouldn't feel immense sadness for what you did, but if you have done everything in your power to make it right, if you've made change, if you've gone to therapy, if you've talked it through, if you've apologized sincerely, if you are taking every single day, you're taking steps to live the right kind of life and do the right kind of thing, and you have someone in your life or many someones in your life who do not want you to forget the past mistake, you need to have every alarm bell in your head screaming at you because this is not healthy. If someone says that they want to move forward, that they want to forgive what has happened and they want to move forward, then moving forward looks like finding a way to leave this baggage behind. Not leave the past behind. Not pretend that it didn't happen. But to say, I am choosing to move forward with you in spite of what has occurred because I love you, because I believe in us, because I understand that you're human, because, because whatever. But if someone is saying that, but their actions are really to keep torturing you with a past mistake, this is broken. This is, you need to go see a therapist. This is you need to have some real conversations about why you are still together. That is a serious red flag. So sometimes we think we can't forgive ourselves, but when we take a step back and look, it's like, oh, yeah, I can't forgive myself because my mom brings this up every time I talk to her. I can't forgive myself because my kids who are now in their 30s are still upset, you know, we're still having something's broken in this conversation and you may need, no, you definitely need a professional to help guide you through it. My first piece of advice would be to talk this through with a professional. So I, I, uh, if you have a counselor at your church, if you've got a therapist, if you can do online therapy, um, I really recommend that it's someone that you trust, not like a friend, not someone who's automatically going to side with you, not, you know, your girlfriend or your boyfriend, but someone who has perspective at like a 50,000 foot level, someone who can sort of see from high above and give you a good opinion on what this looks like. I, I cannot recommend therapy enough. I've been talking about it for years and years. I went to therapy the first time when I was 14 years old. I've used therapists on and off over the years whenever I was going through hard things. And I think that the most powerful thing that a therapist or a counselor can give you 
is a perspective based on what you're saying, not on a 40-year family history that they know. The second thing I'd love to encourage you to do is to find the lesson here, to find the lesson. I, I am going to use it as an example again because it's one of the things that was hardest to forgive myself for, which was putting a post on social media that was hurtful to people. And I, I mean, I've talked about this a million times, but finding the lesson in it, I think, took a minute because what I kept swirling around over and over and over was like, but I didn't mean, I didn't understand that what I was saying was hurtful and I didn't mean to hurt anybody. And I kept obsessing over that idea. And in that sort of obsession and that like sitting in that place, I'm not learning anything. I'm not listening to anything. I'm not growing as a person because I'm just going, but I didn't mean to, but I didn't mean to. I'm I'm holding on to like justification instead of going, okay, well, clearly God had a lesson for me in this. Clearly there's something I don't understand. And clearly there was no way that I could really grasp it on a greater level if I didn't do work. I had more work to do. I still have more work to do. I mean, I think that's what I've understood in that process. It's been a year and a half now. What I understand now is that, oh, I'm going to spend the rest of my life learning these lessons. The last piece of advice I wanted to give you is to consider affirmations. Affirmations, I think, are really powerful as a tool to remind ourselves where we want to go and to remind our mind, what we want to focus on. Because in these instances, you have been practicing the habit of self-hatred for so long that you will very easily slip back into it. So you need something else. You need a North Star. You need something. In, in yoga, they call it a drishti. It's the point of focus that keeps you from falling. You, if you're doing a balancing move, like if you're trying to hold balance in a yoga pose, they ask you to find a small point in the room and focus on it. And if you focus on this point in the room, then you can easily keep your balance. And I think an affirmation can be that for you. So the affirmation that you can build is about what you need, right? Maybe your affirmation is, I have faith in who I am and the decisions I will make in the future. I have faith in my heart. Or maybe your affirmation is, I know that I am a good person and that I do good in the world. Whatever makes sense to you, because only you know your story, that's what you build an affirmation around. And you can Google, like Google best affirmations for self-healing or best affirmations for forgiving myself. You're going to find a ton of examples that you can use one of those or come up with something on your own. But you just remind yourself, like one of the most powerful affirmations I think that we can have as human beings is I want to feel good. That's it. I want to feel good. I want to feel good. If I keep coming back to that alignment, oh, right. I want to feel good. I am telling my spirit. I'm telling my brain. I'm telling my heart. I'm telling all of us together. This is where we're headed. 
And so we want to make decisions that help us to live out that truth. Those are my pieces of advice on how to forgive yourself. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is produced by me, Rachel Hollis. It's edited by Andrew Weller and Jack Noble. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's your time. Join global thought leader, executive producer, and New York Times bestselling author T.D. Jakes and today's leading culture shifters for an experience unlike any other. At the 2024 International Leadership Summit, spiritual and business leaders can gain the practical tools they need to maximize their timing for success. With world-class discussions, breakout sessions, and networking opportunities, this is where your dreams turn into reality. Timing is everything, and your time is now. March 21st through 23rd in Dallas, Texas. Register today at thisisils.org.